You can turn once again in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. We'll be looking particularly at 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. 1 Kings 10, 1 to 13. We are continuing our series, looking at the life of Solomon. And here, this has got kind of, we're going to cover chapters 9 and 10 with a particular focus on this story. Because chapters 9 and 10 carry on the same themes. Uh, The themes of chapters 9 and 10 are Solomon's glorious riches and wisdom, and the flourishing of the kingdom under his rule. And so, so before we read, let me summarize what else is going on at this time. What's detailed in these chapters are things like Solomon's building projects, the palace, the temple, the wall he constructs, various cities and storage facilities, and then also the more ornate works. The, he builds large golden shields. He builds an incomparably massive ivory throne that's overlaid with gold. No one could believe it when they saw it. He raises up a great military force from his people. He trades in horses and chariots, which were the greatest weapons of that day. Becomes actually a large exporter of horses and chariots to other nations. He also builds a fleet of ships in partnership with Hiram of Tyre. And these ships go back and forth, trading all up and down the seas that are adjacent to Israel, bringing back wealth from other nations, engaging in trade. And we also read of how Solomon is careful to maintain his religious devotion. He does the proper sacrifices and feasts at the temple. And although we do know Solomon will fall away from the Lord later on and fall into sin, he's presented, and the picture of these chapters is positive. The wealth and riches are not seen as negative here, but are seen as an evidence of God's blessing upon Solomon's faithfulness. And the point in these chapters is that Under Solomon, Israel is growing strong and flourishing, both politically, economically, militarily, and religiously, because Solomon is still following God at this point. He is still being faithful to God's laws. And the point is also that under God's rule, under God's king, that God's people would flourish. As the king obeyed God and the people walked in that way, God would bring prosperity and good to his people. And that's what we see. And that the nations of the earth themselves would be attracted to this prosperity and desire to know from whence it comes. And so the summary that the author who's writing this wants us to see from these chapters comes at the end of chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, which summarize this era this way. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Solomon excelled the earth, and so the earth wanted to come and see what was going on. And we get a particular snapshot of one of these earth dwellers coming to hear Solomon's wisdom in the Queen of Sheba. The author zooms in on this particular scene to give us a taste of what was happening generally. Okay, so let's focus on this scene with the Queen of Sheba, looking at 1 Kings 10, verses 1 to 13. This is God's holy word. 
Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the fleet of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almagwood and precious stones. And the king made of the almagwood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers. No such almagwood has come or been seen to this day. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked, besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Amen. The picture of Israel in these closing chapters presents to us the closest that Israel ever gets to fulfilling God's intentions for them as a nation. You see, Israel was meant to be a model nation before all the nations of the earth. God took Abraham to make one family that he would then promise to grow into a whole new country. One family, he promised kings to Abraham. And though they're enslaved, God delivers them out. He puts them in their own land and establishes them as a large, powerful nation. He gives them kings as he promised. And under Saul and David, the enemies are defeated. And it's now under Solomon that is the first time in Israel's history that they're actually a nation like God promised. Their enemies are defeated and they're at peace so that they can actually begin, they can begin now to fulfill what God wants for them, to live under his hand and blessing, keeping his rules and commands. You see, under God's rule, Israel was to flourish as the prototypical nation, okay, like God's prototype. And as God's prototype, the nations would be seen that God is the true God, and that life would be exported to the nations that they might also come to serve the true God. This is explicitly what Moses tells them in Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 to 6. 
very important verses. This is what Moses says to Israel. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Israel was supposed to be a model nation who so embodied a flourishing community, living by the regulations God gave them, that the other nations would say, Wow, what kind of nation is that? We should become like that because we want that sort of blessing. They were supposed to be intrigued as to the secret of their success. And in this way, God's promise to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations might have been fulfilled as the nations came inquiring as to how God was working among Israel. And in this time period, under the rule of Solomon, God's prototype is actually succeeding. The nations are seeing what God is doing in Israel, and they are coming from everywhere, streaming to Israel to find out, how on earth is this country succeeding so marvelously? How is there such wisdom flowing from this king? The queen of Sheba is one of these people coming and inquiring. And what I want us to learn from this narrative this evening is the magnetic power of God's wisdom shown in God's community. That is, the magnetic power of God's wisdom heard, God's wisdom seen, resulting in God's wisdom embraced. So let's consider those. God's wisdom heard, seen, and embraced. Take a look again at verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. First thing we want to note is that Solomon's fame was not just his own fame for being a great smart guy. It was definitely connected to his relationship with God. His fame, it said, is concerning the name of the Lord, okay? So let's not think that Solomon was already too big for his britches. This was all stemming back connected to God. And so she's coming to test him with hard questions. She comes with a massive caravan. She must have been a very wealthy queen. And she doesn't just send emissaries. She comes herself. And she comes and she told him all that was on her mind. You see, she wanted to know if this guy was legit, is what everyone's saying about him true? And so she asked him hard questions. This probably isn't like riddles. This is not um, Gollum and Bilbo asking each other little riddles. No, this is probably those deep questions of life. Where did we come from? Why, what are we doing here? What's life all about? Where are we going? She wants to ask the hard questions of life, probably also questions related to her rule as a queen. How do you rule a whole nation? That's hard. That takes wisdom. She comes asking questions. Uh, this is a day before Google, right? We can't just ask any little thing we're wondering. And we're naturally inquisitive people. We want to know answers to our questions. Um, I was reminded as I was thinking of this questioning, um, we all know the, the power of Google and Siri and Alexa, right? Those things you ask questions to. And um, I was reminded of my niece a couple years ago when she was young. She discovered 
her, as her mom was showing her, that she could use Siri on her mom's phone and ask it any question she wanted. And she thought, wow, I can ask this phone any question I want. And so her, her little five-year-old mind is thinking, what is the one question I should ask that'll answer all my problems? And so she goes, Siri, what is eggs? And I just love that. <laughs> Siri, what is eggs? That was what was on uh, my niece's mind. Because uh, she was inquisitive. She wanted to know. And as the answer was spit out and pictures of eggs were so shown, she was delighted. And this, is, this queen is coming, asking hard questions. And it says, Solomon answered all her questions. There wasn't one deep question that she had been carrying that he couldn't answer. That's amazing. There was nothing that he couldn't explain to her because God's wisdom was so evident in Solomon. God is the one who had revealed to Solomon and through his word and law had those answers that satisfies, um, the answers that satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. And part of the magnetic appeal of God's nation is that they were a people to whom God had given his truth. God had given them his precious law, his commandments to show them how to rightly order life for the good of the whole community. And Solomon surpassed all these other kings of the world in wisdom. And through him into the nation, this wisdom was heard. The deepest questions were being answered in the kingdom then. But this is also God's intention for us as his kingdom people now. Because God has given the church to be the pillar and ground of the truth. God has given to the church to speak the wisdom from God. Not the wisdom of this world, but the hidden wisdom, the spiritual wisdom, the wisdom of the Lord Jesus, the wisdom of gospel truth. Because the Christian worldview is the only one that has truly explanatory power. The only one that answers the deepest question of our soul's longings. And the truth of God is found in God's word, his repository of wisdom, a gift from Christ to us. And so, just as in that day people were attracted to the wisdom they heard being proclaimed, so also today people ought to be attracted to the wisdom they hear shared of Christ through his church. And so if you want to see people encounter the wisdom of Christ, we ought to desire them to come into an encounter with his word. You see, sometimes we're, I think we're sometimes afraid to use the word of God with people who don't believe it. We think, well, they don't even believe the Bible's true, so why should I quote the Bible to them? Why should I ask them to look into it? They don't need to believe that the Bible is true before it can be useful. The Bible is the power of the Holy Spirit. As that idiom goes, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. We need to use scripture. Uh, boys and girls, imagine a scenario with me. Say you're at, at lunch, maybe, with a friend or at school, and your friend is boasting about how they're really good at eating hot peppers. They can handle all the heat. But you have discovered that you have a Carolina Reaper with you, which is the hottest of all hot peppers. And your friend says, oh, I can handle jalapenos just fine. And you say, no, this pepper is really, really hot. It will definitely affect you seriously. You will not be able to handle it. And they say, ah, oh, nah. You say, try it. They say, ah, oh, I don't need to. I don't, I don't believe it'll be any hotter than a jalapeno. 
And you could try to explain to them the science and be like, well, are you aware of Scofield units of heat? This is like 20 times hotter than that one. This is how it affects your tongue's chemistry and makes it think it's on fire and stuff. And you could explain away, but they don't need to just try to come to a cognitive understanding of the heat of the pepper. What you need to do is give them the pepper, they eat it, and make a believer out of them. That's what happens in the same way with God's word. We don't need to try to worry their doubts and arguments. Give them the word of God, which is the sword in the hand of the Spirit, and the Spirit does his work, chopping down those defenses that are raised up against him. And I should say, I don't recommend making your friends eat very hot peppers. But uh, when you experience the power of God's word, you can't deny it. It's so powerful, it changes the hardest of hearts. It melts the heart of stone. We want to bring people into an encounter with God's word because that reveals God's wisdom, and particularly the gospel, the wisdom of Christ. The hearing of wisdom is a magnetically powerful, attractive force. It's part of our work as the missional community. And, but there was not just wisdom that the queen heard. She also saw wisdom practice. Take a look at verse 4. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. That's not quite the statement. There was no more breath in her. Because you see, Solomon's wisdom, it wasn't just talk. But there was social effects flowing down from him into various facets of the community. She mentions his architecture, his agricultural production, his governmental organization, even fashion, and their religious life. All these things were imbued with the sense of divine wisdom, and it took her breath away. And she continues in verse 6 saying, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came. And my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. She says, I had to come and see for myself, but now I see. And it is twice as good as what I expected. You know that feeling where you just need to investigate something for yourself? What someone's told you is just not good enough. Um, you hear how, you know, if you fold a piece of paper in half 42 times and you try to guess how high that stack of paper would be, and then someone tells you it would reach the moon, and you're like, no way, that doesn't make sense. So you need to ask a mathematician and find out for yourself, indeed, if you fold a paper in half 44, 42 times, it would reach to the moon. And actually, even more so, if you fold a piece of paper in half 103 times, it would be the length of the entire known universe. The entire known universe. That's how math works. You might need to Google that for yourself. Or if someone tells you that it's impossible to eat six saltine crackers in 60 seconds, you think, no, I can totally eat six saltine crackers in 60 seconds. So you try for yourself. You want to experience, is this true? And in this same way, and you'll realize it's not true. You cannot do it. But the Queen of Sheba, she comes and she says, this is even better than I thought. The way you're living, the way your servants are living, the way your kingdom operates, it can be nothing but divine wisdom. 
The culture was thriving under Solomon. God was displaying his wisdom like a peacock displaying his tail feathers. All the colors and the beauty that was being found. And this was all coming, flowing down from the wisdom of the king. It's it's as if the king's wisdom was like a, a fountain, an irrigation system that was spreading out to the whole land. And as that wisdom went out from that central source of the king, the whole nation grew and flourished and prospered in justice and in peace. Because embracing God's wisdom and walking in God's ways, by doing this, the community of Israel was to experience God's blessing. This was part of his covenant with them. Blessings promised for obedience. This divine wisdom was evident in everything that the queen saw and experienced. And so she says in verse 8, this is her consideration. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. And look at this. She even praises God here. She says, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. When God's wisdom permeates all of life, the result is joy. She says, happy are your people. Walking in God's ways is the best way to live. It's the path of holiness that is the truest path of happiness. As Solomon himself said, when the righteous rule, the people will rejoice. And the queen responds to this, acknowledging the true God as the source of this blessing, praising him for what she's done. And so again, we see that the wisdom of God displayed not only in the truth she heard, but also in the justice and goodness she experienced, it magnetically attracted her to the source of wisdom the God of all the earth. God's wisdom on display here was a missional force drawing her in. And we know now that the church is the new kingdom of Christ. No longer that physical nation under Solomon, but a spiritual kingdom under Christ. And what is true of that kingdom physically is to be true of the church spiritually. And that the world now is to hear the wisdom of Christ through the church and see the wisdom of Christ displayed in the church. Um, And so we might ask then, how does the church, how can we as God's people, how can the church magnetically attract the world to the wisdom of Christ? Well, we already saw that we do it through the proclaiming of God's word. That's how the world will hear God's wisdom. But how will they see God's wisdom? Displayed in our community. Well, in part, Jesus answers this question for us in John 13, 35, where he says, By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. The love we show to each other is meant to be that magnetically attractive force to the world. It's no longer in the kingdom of Christ our physical prosperity and wealth that is to draw people in, but our spiritual and communal prosperity, um, our, our spiritual life that attracts people to the wisdom of God. And so in the same way that the queen of Sheba said to Solomon, look at how your servants are dressed. Look at your food. Look at your government. 
Our desire now is that the world would look to the church and say, look at how they love one another. Look at how there's not a needy one among them. Look at how they care for the poor, the widow, the stranger, and the orphan among them. Look at how they look to each other's interests before their own. Look at how they share what they have and give to one another. Look at how they forgive even when they are wronged. Wow, that's such a loving, amazing community. Where does that come from? Where is there such unity to be found, uniting different ages and different races and different cultures? What could be such a force? Because the magnetic force of the wisdom of Christ in his church is no longer political power or prosperity, but unquenchable joy and sacrificial love. Christ isn't drawing in the nations through the powerful, but through the lowly through a suffering and even persecuted people that form his new covenant community. The church is a countercultural new society that lives and can flourish even in hostile pagan societies. And the church in, in a hostile land is to be as a magnet, provoking that interest and curiosity of outsiders, drawing in unbelievers through the wisdom of the word of truth, and the love of a community of truth-tellers. God's missional strategy is that the church act as that leaven, which works slowly, invisibly, growing until it leavens the whole lump. That's Christ's prophecy of the kingdom of God. And this would be our great desire to attract people through the truth of God and the love of the community. But we have to remember, where is the source of it all? Where does this love come from? Where does the power to obey and believe and proclaim come from? Where does the word of God come from? But from our wise king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true prophet who came and declared to us in his word wisdom from God. He declared to us the will of our heavenly father. But he came also as priest to bring us forgiveness of sins and cleansing from all our filthiness, all our self-love, everything by which we would stand apart from one another. But also as our king ascended to lead us in love. Christ is guiding us through his spirit and word to be this loving community that reflects his wisdom. It's not of us. It's all a gift that comes through his infinite mercy and work. So if we are to be the sort of community, we are to remember what Christ has done to bring this about. And even as we're thinking about the world-changing effects of this power in gospel wisdom, we need to take thought to ourselves. You see, this story of the Queen of Sheba comes with it an implicit warning this is actually the only scene from the life of Solomon that is noted and explained at all in the New Testament. And Jesus uses this story when he's talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 12. The scribes and Pharisees who are, you know, these are the religious people, the ones who grew up in church, who knew the scriptures, who were trying to live uh, moral and upright lives. He's talking to them and they're looking for a sign. They're saying, how can we know that you are who you say you are. I've heard what you say, but I want to see some miracles. 
It's as if they were saying, you know, what have you done for me lately? Things aren't quite the way I would want. What are you going to do about it? And Jesus tells them that it's evil to demand a sign. That's not what you should be looking for. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, who was asleep for three nights, speaking there of his death and resurrection. But then he gives this terrifying indictment of the religious leaders of his day. This is what he says in Matthew 12, 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching and look, something greater than Jonah is here. Here's what Christ is saying. He's saying these outsiders, these heathen Assyrians, the Assyrians were super, super wicked. These heathen Gentiles, they repented when Jonah preached to them. You know Jonah, boys and girls, scared Jonah, running away from God, timid, fearful Jonah. He preaches and this wicked nation repents. And Jesus is saying, if they repented at Jonah, do you realize that a greater prophet than Jonah is here? If they repented at Jonah's preaching and you have not repented at my preaching, they will condemn you. They repented even when Jonah preached to them. But you've seen the Son of God preach to you and yet you don't repent and heed his preaching. At the final judgment, Christ is saying, these outsiders will condemn you insiders. But then he continues with a second illustration about the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. In Matthew 12, 42, he says, The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. Again, Christ is saying, this heathen queen, this outsider, she traveled across the then known world to see King Solomon. A great king, but a mere human king. And even his wisdom took her breath away and she blessed the Lord and she gave him of her treasures. But you Pharisees, far from worshiping and being in awe of the true king come in the flesh, you're despising him. You're seeking to destroy him. You, unlike those magi that came and brought gifts from a foreign land, you Pharisees like Simon wouldn't even give me the common courtesy of a welcome when I entered your house, of water for my feet. And therefore, this queen will rise up at the judgment and condemn you because she traveled land and sea to hear the wisdom of a mere earthly king. And yet you will not come and honor the true heavenly king, the true wise one, who all he spoke was wisdom. The queen of Sheba would condemn these religious people these churchgoers, these people that knew and memorized scripture, she'd condemn them because she came to wisdom from God when they did not. And dear friends, may this never be said of any of you. For you here who have grown up in the church, heard this Bible read to you from the time you were young, have, have been catechized, even confessed the faith, tried to raise your families right. The question is, have you embraced the wisdom of Christ? Have you embraced the truth of the gospel as found in his word, declaring that 
you are sinful and unworthy of true life on your own. And yet Christ did come to take sin, to live righteously on behalf of his people, that you might have his robes of righteousness, to pay the debt of sin, to rise again, to deliver you from slavery to lusts. Have you embraced the wisdom of this gospel truth? But also have you embraced the wisdom of Christ's ways to walk in the way of loving one another, of serving your brothers and sisters, of putting to death the deeds of the flesh, of bringing to life the things of the Spirit, to use spiritual gifts, to bear forth spiritual fruit, not only to have just heard and embraced Christ's words, but to have followed in Christ's ways. Because if you have not, if you are seeking to live according to your own wisdom, because you know how to have a comfortable life, you know how to have just a nice way of it on earth, this queen of Sheba will arise also and condemn you. She responded to the wisdom of Solomon, a mere earthly king, in a time when there was so little revelation. To have now so much more, to have even the words of Christ himself, the words of his apostles, the amount God has made clear now in a new covenant era leaves us utterly without excuse. How could you have heard these words of the gospel week after week and still think that you know a better way to live? If you do, the queen of the south will rise up with this generation and condemn you for not coming to Christ. And so the call then is to come to Christ as wisdom, to respond to his word and place all your trust in him, to choose to reject living, following your own path and wisdom, and to walk wherever he would have you go, to trust and surrender yourself to him completely. You no longer need to cross land and sea like the Queen of Sheba did. You don't need to go from the ends of the earth to find wisdom. It's proclaimed to you in the gospel. That Christ died and rose again to bring forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. Trust that Christ is wiser than you. His word is truth and his wisdom is the path you need. To follow him, he says and calls, if you want to be my disciple, Christ says, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. Reject your own wisdom and embrace the wisdom of Christ. Who, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, he became to us wisdom from God. Also our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire that we would be among those on that final day that have no other plea but Christ's blood and righteousness, who would come to you at the end of our years, not holding up our own ways and righteousness and what we've sought to make of our lives, but would we come confessing that Christ is our only hope. His righteousness is the only righteousness we need. His mercy is what we seek. Lord, grant us greater trust in Christ, and not for ourselves only, but that all the nations would become Christ's disciples they would hear the wisdom of his word. They would see the wisdom of his loving community and respond with faith. But Lord, start in us. Draw us to greater faith. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.